0: Welcome to Studio of the Future. Hello, future fans. Today, our guest is Julie Berwald, an enthusiastic ocean scientist with a new book entitled Spineless, The Science of Jellyfish and the Art of Growing a Backbone. On Julie's first snorkel adventure in college in the Red Sea, marine invertebrates stole her heart. Hoping to study the ocean forever, she spent seven years building mathematical algorithms to interpret satellite imagery of the ocean and received her Ph.D. in ocean science. Then she met her husband and drifted away from the ocean to Austin, Texas to start her family. Landlocked, she wrote textbooks and popular science articles for Wired.com, Oceanus, Redbook, and while writing for National Geographic magazine, discovered a fact about jellyfish, which led her back to the sea And the creation of her impactful, fascinating book, Spineless. So the night we met, you told me you love jellyfish. And I was telling you the story about I was down in Palacios and I saw a cabbage head jellyfish. And so I was in a kayak and I was kayaking next to it, which it looked like it was just floating. But then when I looked closely, it was actually swimming. Yeah. So it was bobbing there in the water. And then I saw this little tiny, teeny tiny crab swimming in the water. And the next thing I knew when I looked back at the cabbage fish... The crab was inside the bell yeah. and it, and I was sad and Marty was there too. So I was going, Marty, oh. it ate the crab. But then when I met you and I told you the story, you said. Maybe not.
1: That it could be just living inside of the jellyfish and using it as protection, you know,
0: from predators. So when I saw the little crab, he was out, he or she was out getting morsels to eat. And then it just went back as a home to mm. live inside that cabbage fish
1: It's baby? possible. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of crabs, crustaceans that live inside jellyfish because if you think about the ocean, it's like this big surfaceless space. And so any surface is could be a home the way that a tree can be a home like on a prairie. Mm. And so the crabs can live inside the jellyfish. Some of them lay their eggs in there, the way that like ants and birds lay their eggs on trees and they can kind of snack off the jellyfish too, like the way that ants, you know, and some birds will eat mm-hmm. berries and ants will eat leaves. So yeah, jellyfish can be kind of this this little
0: ecosystem that floats around in the ocean. And jellyfish are sp- spineless, brainless, bloodless, and eyeless? So no, they, no, 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 no. No, no, no. Oh, good. So, <laughs> so,
1: so. Um, they are, yes, they ha- they're they really different than us. Mm-hmm. And sort of the technical differences, I mean, the big technical difference is that we have three cell layers. We have three kinds of, of tissue. So we have an epidermis that's on our outside, our skin. We have an endodermis that lines our, our guts. Mm-hmm. And they have both of those. But, in between, we have what's called the mesoderm, the middle the middle skin layer. Mm-hmm. And that holds all our organs. And jellyfish don't have that. They have jelly, which is called technically called mesoglia. And the cool thing about the mesoglia or the jelly is that it's not made out of cells. So it doesn't cost very much to maintain in terms of like metabolism, mm-hmm. right? You don't have to feed it a bunch of oxygen, and you don't have to clear out a lot of wastes. So it's really kind of like they live this very economical life <laughs> by not having to to keep up with all mm-hmm. those organs and cells and things that like we do. Uh-huh. And so they're super metabolically efficient. They're super meta uh, sw- swimming, they're the most efficient swimmer like if you, you know, per kilogram per foot in the ocean <laughs> or per pound per foot in the ocean, uh-huh. you know, they can swim using hardly any energy at all. And 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 another thing that that jelly does is it's mostly made out of water. So if you think about squeezing a water balloon, mm-hmm. you know, in the middle, you squeeze it and it, it goes in. But then when you let go of squeezing it, it just pops back to that original shape. And that's just because water is incompressible. Mm -hmm. So they're essentially a water balloon. So they have muscles that can squeeze in and have to use energy, Mm -hmm. but then they just relax them and they pop open for free just because of the water and the jelly. So they have all these really amazing adaptations to living that are kind of brilliant in Mm -hmm. a way. Mm -hmm. So they don't have a brain per se, but they have a nervous system. And I feel like they have sort of a... Emergent intelligence, mm-hmm. if you will, mm-hmm. that has made them super successful in the oceans. Oh, but when I didn't even get to the eyes. Oh yeah, <laughs> so oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> so like, no, yeah. I'm just I sitting just here with my mouth agape. This is <laughs> like, so good. It's like I'm, I, I,
0: I could just sit here and you, you're like the best jellyfish storyteller I've ever met. So, so go wow. ahead. So I'll what about that their eyes, as Julie? A huge
1: compliment. <laughs> um, so if you look at a jellyfish, kind of around the outside of the bell, the bell is like the umbrella part, right? Mm-hmm. You'll see it's, they're almost always scalloped, kind of. Mm-hmm. And in between the, the two scallops is their sensory organ. And they so they'll have like eight of them around the outside of the bell. They tend to come in multiples of four. Hmm. So um, they're called, the technical name is Repelia. But it's basically just a little face. Because on that little, and it looks kind of like a finger almost. And on it, um, they'll, there's eye spots. Huh. And they can actually see light and dark, and there's also kind of this area that's called the touch plate, and it's full of cilia, and that cilia can smell chemicals like a nose,
0: wow. and
1: that it can also feel the currents, mm-hmm. the, le- the way our skin. And the hairs on our skin tell us that the wind is blowing or not blowing. And there's another little thing in there called a statocyst, which is like a ball full of nerves. And there's a little crystal in it. And that crystal feels gravity. And it rests on the bottom of the little... All of nerves. Mm-hmm. And so the jellyfish knows where down is because the crystal rests on the bottom of it. And then if it turns and the crystal, you know, will like always our, be like down. Like our
0: iPhones, when you turn your Yeah, iPhone, exactly. The same
1: thing. The right? thing. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we have the same system in our ears. Like that's what tells us where up and down mm-hmm. is. We have little crystals that weigh down on nerve cells and that's how we know where up and down is. So they have all these things on these um, eight, you know, like in a moon jellyfish mm-hmm. or or the kind of cabbage head that Mm -hmm. you saw, um, well, cabbage heads might have a few more than eight, but anyway, they have them all around the outside of their bell and they're connected with a lot of nervous wiring. Mm -hmm. And what happens is there's even another thing. There's a, what's called a pacemaker (laughs) right in this little face thing. And that tells the jellyfish how fast it should squeeze its bell. So if one of its, faces, Mm -hmm. sees danger or smells danger, it will tell the pacemaker better speed up. And that pacemaker will send the signal around the whole jellyfish bell and the jellyfish will be like, ah, let me get out of here and squeeze, 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 squeeze and, and run away. Okay. So it has, you know, it has (laughs) an intelligence, an ability to respond to Mm -hmm. its world around it. That's pretty sophisticated. And so, yeah, they are technically brainless, Mm -hmm. but they've got it wired in you know huh. they know how they can survive really okay. well
0: you're making me think of a million questions so the okay. <laughs> first one that comes to mind is i was listening to you on another podcast talk about how jellyfish were sent to space yeah in in conjunction with what you were talking about the ears so yeah, can you yeah. tell people about that
1: yeah so when when astronauts go to space um they get space sick and people, we really still don't understand why, but they feel queasy, they feel weird. And one of the reasons is because the gravity on the little crystals in our ears that tell us we're up and down, it is not as strong in space. Mm. So our our bo- it's almost like having vertigo, like our body has a hard time adjusting. But it's really hard to study astronauts' ears in space, their inner ears in mm-hmm. particular. So they sent up jellyfish to study their are the way that, um, and they sent up 2,400 on the spaceship Columbia, and they had some of them, like they hatched some of them here on Earth and then sent them up to see what that would do, and then they hatched some in space
0: and brought them down to see what would happen. So so, so someone like you, a jellyfish scientist, got to go? I mean, somebody had to take care of those 2,400? hundred jellyfish they weren't just in space alone right
1: right well they actually train the astronauts on how to no. do it yes
0: yeah, so. <laughs> so would so, you ever go in space if they approached you and said would you like to go, well, study? I would go in space even if there weren't jellyfish mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm.
1: um yeah, yeah yeah but I mean yeah so I interviewed the for my book I interviewed Tammy Jernigan who was the um astronaut who took care of the jellyfish and you know as you would expect she was kind of nonplussed. Like, she's like, an, I'm an astronaut, I do my job. Like, that's how astronauts are. Like,
0: I could just say, if you were up there in space, it would be a lot more exciting when Houston, this is Julie. We'd <laughs> all be like, what's going on? And
1: you be We've like, we just hatched a thousand <laughs> jellyfish. Yeah, they're I mean, so cute. You can't imagine. I
0: think the space program would get a lot more listeners if no. someone like you was in space, not a pragmatic person. Well, the jellyfish I think are fun. you need
1: the pragmatic, though, because like, when bad things happen, you mm-hmm. want that pragmatism.
0: Yes. Well, you'd be a good team if okay, they anyway. <laughs> um, and so and another question is, so they have little arms that feed their mouths or they that push food into their mouths. So what do jellyfish eat and how do they eat and do they poop? Do yeah, they- <laughs> I'll tell you this. The
1: very first time I was talking about jellyfish, I hadn't written the book yet. And I got put on this panel to talk about um, writing. And I was taking the place for this poet who hadn't showed up. And, and so... What I did to, like, allay my fears was make up a jellyfish poem about how they poop. So do you want to hear it?
0: I would love to hear it. I feel like this is an exclusive. I didn't hear this anywhere else. Please share your poem of poop.
1: Consider the life of the jelly. It has tentacles like vermicelli. You might think it's crass, but it eats with its ass because it has just one hole in its belly. Anyway, yeah. So jellyfish only have one hole in their belly, and so so wait in their uh, bellies, their belly underneath. Yeah, so okay. underneath their bell, it has a mouth, and then hanging off the mouth are sort of like these extendo lips, mm-hmm. and they're called oral arms mm-hmm. because they have control over; they can move them and bend them, and and the the oral arms are lined with stinging cells, and the stinging cells fire and they mostly eat plankton, um, fish eggs. They'll eat. I mean, one guy, this guy who didn't make it into my book, this retired guy up in uh, British Columbia, he goes kayaking on this lake where there's jellyfish Mm. all the time. And he like did this experiment where he brought all kinds of things to see if the jellyfish in the lake would eat them. So he brought like lentils and cereal and um, p- pieces of paper. He put he put all these things next to the jellyfish and, and they ate it all. He wow. he got them to eat pine needles, <laughs> you know, like They sound like trash compactors they, in a There's way. some jellyfish I think that are not very selective mm-hmm. in what they'll eat. There are other reports of jellyfish being very selective. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of species of jellyfish, so I think How many species are there? Well, There's around 2,000 that are named, but probably there's a lot more. There's at least probably at least double that.
0: So some way in the depths that we don't know about. Can they go pretty far down?
1: They go all the way to the very bottom of the ocean. They go to the Arctic. There's really cool video of jellyfish swimming underneath the the sea ice in the Arctic and in the Antarctic. Yeah, so they're everywhere, all depths, all oceans. Wow. Yeah, so they're ubiquitous.
0: I have a question about man-o-wars. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember growing up, we would go to Galveston every summer, and one time my sister was in the ocean, and she started screaming, and my dad, yeah. I've never seen my dad run that fast. Oh. He ran out there, and he came in, and she was just, it had been a man of war oh. And so, you know, we were doing the... The sand thing, which I'd love to ask you about when you get stings. But yeah. anyway, I, he brought her back in, and I, I always wondered about man o' wars because they seem like they're full of air instead of jelly. Is that true, or is that just a misperception I have? Okay,
1: so man o' wars are so cool and complicated. They're actually a colony of jellyfish. Mm. So if you think about, it's kind of maybe easier to think about a coral reef when you think about a man o' war. Mm-hmm. So a coral reef is a colony basically a colony of kind of like sea anemones Hmm. that have all kind of grown together. They, they create, you know, a, um, a skeleton that they live in that that's what the corals do. So it's almost the same sort of thing with a man or it's a, it's a colony of jellyfish. The Medusa stage Mm -hmm. that we know is really only part of their life cycle. The there's another part that's just as important that we don't really know about Um, which is called the polyp stage, and that Mm. actually does also looks like a sea anemone. Going back to just plain jellyfish. Jellyfish have a medusa, and they produce eggs and sperms that form a little teeny larvae, which is called a planula larvae, and it looks like a tic-tac with fur all over it. Yeah, it's very cute. (laughs) It's just the idea of a jellyfish. (laughs) And it kind of swims down, and it likes to live on the bottom of a surface, and then it sprouts into kind of like a little teeny sea anemone, Mm. and that's called the polyp. Mm -hmm. And the polyp um, can live like that for a long, long time, maybe decades. Mm -hmm. We don't really know. People haven't been able to study the wild polyps very well. So we know a lot of what we know about polyps from lab experiments. Mm -hmm. But they can divide uh, asexually and form like a field of polyps. Mm -hmm. And so one planula larvae can become like coat the whole bottom of a dock or something. And... I've really gotten far away from the man of war. I'll come back to it. I no, swear. this is fascinating. Okay, so, I, I,
0: I trust you. So, don't
1: <laughs> and then what happens is this amazing, strange, and wonderful thing. So, if you think about a polyp as kind of like a cup with tentacles around the the rim of the cup, what it does is it slices itself horizontally, so it becomes like a stack of pancakes. Mm. And and so if you have a whole field of them, they all kind of do it at the same time because there's like a change in water temperature, a change in salinity or something that signals them to do this. Mm-hmm. And so one polyp can be like a dozen or so of these pancake. pancakes. And then each pancake pops off the polyp and becomes a free swimming baby jellyfish. And the polyp remains there <gasps> and grows back. So it's so so you can have a whole field of polyps become you know, dozens, hundreds, thousands of Medusa. And that's why we kind of see them in big blooms most ah, of the time.
0: So they're like the rabbits of the sea.
1: They're like, yeah, I mean, in a way, the Medusa is kind of like the fruit of the polyp. Mm. It's like the apples or the, mm. you know, the, you know, when we have crazy... Um,
0: Pomegranates. Or yeah, anything. yeah.
1: And then they go off and they swim around and they, you know, produce more planula and then more polyps. And so, but this is why there's kind of a a feeling out there that there's more jellyfish around Mm -hmm. now Mm -hmm. because we've created by, because of so much coastal development, we've created all these surfaces for polyps to live on. Because if you think about it in nature, there's not a huge amount of upside down hanging surfaces, Mm -hmm. but now there are. Because of docks and jetties and oil rigs and gas rigs, and so we've we've invited them into our coastlines mm. um, without really knowing it. But so, so to go back to back the man o' war for Manowar. one okay. second, <laughs> because I have more questions so, now. So the man o' war <laughs> is actually a floating colony of basically of polyps, ah. and it produces these teeny tiny medusae that are so small, and they go off and they do their thing. But instead of these polyps, instead of living on a surface, mm-hmm. they create that gas bladder and they, that's their surface uh, that they live on. Oh, I see. So, so
0: okay. So, so, the, so they just kind of reversed oh. everything.
1: They're like, screw it. We don't need y- any hard thing. We'll just create our own.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. so
1: they're a colony and, and within that colony, there are some some that just reproduce, some that just feed, they're all specialized. It's really an interesting, interesting animal.
0: Mm -hmm. It blows
1: your mind because you start to think about what is an individual and what is, um, when you think about living this colonial lifestyle, Mm -hmm. you know, like how how does cooperation happen when you're
0: part of a group like this? And where does individual start and end? Mm -hmm. It's really cool. So another thing is... um most jellyfish, when we see them, they're spectacularly beautiful. Yes. They're all these colors. They're luminescent. Yes. Iridescent. Yes. Um, and just to stay on the man of war for a second, it always seems blue. Is that to match the sky or the water? And then they have those extra long tentacles. What's to do with color and what's to do with being translucent?
1: Think about it, if you're a bird and you're you're flying over the water and, and your strategy as an animal is to float. They actually float on top of the water, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um you want to not look like anything that a bird wants to come down mm-hmm. and pluck
0: mm-hmm. so that
1: that would mm-hmm. be the reason i think that they're camouflaged they're so cap yeah mm-hmm. they're
0: blue so the other colors in the sea you know we it's there's some that seem to be phosphorescent and glow when yeah. they're in deeper waters and then there's some that are yellows and some so are the colors a, a way of attracting food and and keeping predators at bay
1: so one thing
0: to always remember
1: about colors in the ocean is that colors are not the same as what we experience here on land. Mm. So very, very quickly, the color, the water starts to absorb color, right? Mm-hmm. So you go down, um, maybe 50 feet in the, not even maybe 20 feet in mm-hmm. the ocean and all the reds are gone. So they look like black and it, it's thought that it's easier for invertebrates to produce red pigment than black pigment, just, um, metabolically, oh, you know, they have to use less energy to make it. Mm-hmm. So you'll see a lot of reds because it's like a burglar wearing black. Uh-huh. On, so to us, we us. see red, but in the ocean, in the ocean everyone else sees black. It's black Wow. because there is no red light. <sighs> so, and then you go down maybe another 20 feet in all of the, um, all of the, the, Oranges are gone. Most of the yellows start to be gone. And then by like 100 feet or so, depending on the water, you mm-hmm. know, the greens will go away. And then by the time you get down, you know, maybe even 300 feet, it's it's just the blues that are left. Wow. So, um, so, yeah. So we have to like readjust, you know, like how dogs can only see blue and yellow. Mm-hmm. Like we have to reimagine seeing the world in... Through, it, through a jellyfish sort it, or of through eyes. The, the eyes of all the <laughs> things that live there, uh-huh. where there are no red, there is no red light. There is wow. no yellow
0: light. And so as far as predators, is is this true? Like the giant squid, I seem to think, did they eat jellyfish? Well- Is that true?
1: So it's so interesting. And there was just a big article in the New York Times about this by Carl Zimmer about two weeks ago. Um Yeah, for a long, long time, scientists didn't think that jellyfish, anything ate jellyfish mm. because- The way that we understand what eats what in the ocean is to either see it, which is a really hard thing to do because we can only go in the ocean for like these short little hikes and then we have to leave. Mm -hmm. You know, no one, no one lives there. No one just gets to observe things all the time. So Mm -hmm. it's really tricky. Um, Or more, so mostly how we understand what eats what in the ocean is we cut open the bellies and we look inside and see what's there. And you'll, you'll never see a jellyfish. Because what's going to be left? Like what remains of the jelly are going to be left? Peanut butter, right? It's like eating peanut butter. You'll you won't see peanut butter in any gut gut content. Well, I was
0: thinking of the jelly. Oh my god, the jelly goes away. Yeah, the jelly's
1: gone. Right. No, but yeah, even the peanut butter would be gone. So, um, but now with DNA, we're starting to just be able to sample. The DNA in the belly, Mm. and it turns out everything eats jellyfish. There's been reports in the last year of penguins eat a lot of jellyfish, Um, albatrosses eat a lot of jellyfish, these birds called mures eat a lot of jellyfish, Um, tuna eat jellyfish, sharks eat jellyfish. People eat jellyfish. People eat jellyfish. Yeah. So probably almost everything in the ocean eats jellyfish, and. And we just haven't realized that and we haven't worked that into our ecosystem models yet. And so um, jellyfish are, instead of being like a dead end to the food chain, which is what everyone sort of thought, they, they are probably maybe a buffer mm. providing nutrition when there's no other nutrition around. Mm. And so they could play a way more important role in ecosystems
0: than we thought. And this is a great segue because ecosystems are very important right now. Yeah. And I, I was reading about how Anambia... Is Namibia. Namibia. Um, can you talk about what's happening there with their ecosystem and jellyfish? Yeah, that's
1: a really sad story. And and um, so historically, um, the Namibian waters were some of the most productive waters in the world for fisheries. Like the fish haul there was, you know, in a million tons a year. It was extraordinary. And um, but what happened was, when, when it, Namibia didn't have a very strong government. And so South Africa kind of came in, which is just South of Namibia. South Africa kind of like took control of Namibian waters and just let it be a free for all for fishing. Mm. And they overfished like mad. And these huge factory ships came in um, that could, could just troll the waters, almost clear cutting the waters. And, and that happened for like a decade and Basically it, it just destabilized the ecosystem enough so that these two species of jellyfish came in and and were like, we don't have any predators here. We don't really have any competitors here. And their population numbers exploded. And now in Namibia, the biomass, the weight of jellyfish is about three to four times that of fish. And the mm-hmm. seals that usually eat fish are starving and the birds are starving. And it's um, it's a it's an ecosystem that's been just turned upside down, and no one can say if it will ever come back to being an ecosystem
0: or fish So there's no dominant. way to rebalance everything in a situation that, like you can't somehow. Uh, erode those jellyfish populations down and bring the fish population back up? Well, remember, jellyfish
1: have that really crazy complicated life cycle with Mm -hmm. the polyps being the jellyfish factory, the Medusa factory. Mm -hmm. So you would have to somehow scour all the surfaces for the Medusa. And I mean, the one thing you can hope for is that I guess um, the jellyfish sort of outcompete themselves, you know, like they Mm -hmm. run out of food and die back Mm -hmm. or you get some sort of maybe like warming system that comes through that can somehow kill off Mm -hmm. some of the jellyfish and allow fish to come back in, but there's just no telling
0: when or how that could happen. Um, So I want to ask about the Suez Canal, Mm -hmm. and I want to ask about Nomad Jellyfish. Mm Nomadic. Nomadic. So can you tell people about what happened there or is happening
1: there? Yeah, and I guess this is a really nice place for me to talk about like just the book being not just about jellyfish science, although clearly there's a lot of it in there, but um, the subtitle of the book is The Science of Jellyfish and the Art of Growing a Backbone. And The Art of Growing the Backbone was really about me learning to recognize that I needed to step into my own voice and and share what I knew with the world in a way that mattered. And I think, you know, if I'm honest with myself, I I I thought that the book about jellyfish would be a way for me to write a book, but not really, but stay on this like quirky creature that not that many people were paying attention to. But what I discovered along the way is that's really hiding from what I needed to be doing. And so what happened was the jellyfish scientists who I was kind of like hounding, um, told me the story that the Suez Canal was going to be doubled in capacity, but that no environmental impact assessment had been done. No one was looking at what the environmental repercussions of doubling the size of this really big canal that connects two major oceans together would be. And I said, well, how... How is that possible? Aren't there regulations out there that should, should con- you know, pe- people should control that? Mm-hmm. And they said, yeah, there are, but you know, but no one's doing enforcing it? it. Oh my! And I said, what do you mean? And they said, go, go look. So I found out that there were four United Nations treaties, international treaties, the whole world had signed onto, that should have regulated this doubling in capacity of the Suez Canal, and. Not one of them was being enforced. No one no one was even noticing. And so I went back to the jellyfish scientists. I'm like, are you sure this is right? No one's doing anything. And they go, why don't you call around and see what you can find out? And I was like, oh, man, I guess I have to do this. Wow. So I started calling them, these United Nations agencies, and they like, I said, you know, you, the Suez Canal is being doubled in capacity. You're supposed to be regulating it. Where, when are you going to do your environmental impact assessment? And they would hang up on me and or they'd be like you need to talk to this other person call this person in Malta call oh. this person in France so i did i called and i spent 2 weeks trying to find someone who would make a comment about this and no one no one would
0: so they're all passing the buck all and pa- no one's ever taken any action at all no
1: and in the meantime egypt who has the right to to maybe expand the suez canal but needs to do it in accordance with the treaties that they have signed on to, mm-hmm. had raised $8 million within like six months to do this project. And um, I was like, this is crazy. So I pitched the story to the New York Times. They've, they recognized it was an important story and they published it. And I thought, well, now, yeah. you know, now mm-hmm. the international community will see they're neglecting. Everyone like, will take They're action. all violating yes. their treaties Yes, and nothing happened. Nothing happened ever. And that canal was built in a year and it's flowing. And just like the jellyfish scientists predicted, um, species are, cause the water flow through the canal, canal uh, comes from the Indian ocean into the Mediterranean. And because of warming, climate warming, species that might not have otherwise been able to survive in the Mediterranean, cause historically it's been colder mm-hmm. than the Indian ocean. Well, now it's warmer so they can survive. And there's this one species called the nomadic jellyfish, which is a really, really bad stinger. Probably came through the Suez Canal, and it probably came through before the expansion, Mm -hmm. but it's possible more have come through since the expansion. But either way, now there are um, hundreds of kilometers of Mediterranean that are now coated in these jellyfish every summer, and they are really bad stingers, and they sweep into power plants and shut power plants down every year and when they're out the fishermen can't fish and it's just a really you know it's it's a, it's a it's a, sound, it's a signal it's mm-hmm. a it's the it's, jellyfish saying to us, like, we have to take better
0: care of yeah, our planet yeah. if we want it to exist this way. If this was a virus and it was affecting people, which it is, but people aren't noticing, right. because it's sort of a silent virus, right? and we don't really look at the ocean except as this kind of mythical yeah. other place where we can dump stuff, right? But what you're saying is, if we don't pay attention to what the jellyfish are saying, this virus will continue to spread and cause more havoc and more devastation, not only for life in the sea but all of us here on on land
1: yeah i mean right and exactly and the the (laughs) oceans you know the oceans are the oceans are our our lifeblood in a way um all of our weather systems are connected to the ocean and The ocean is this giant conveyor belt. I I mean, the whole ocean is a huge conveyor belt that goes around the whole planet. And along coastlines, you know, the reason why it is so, it should be technically so productive off Namibia is because of this giant conveyor belt. Because the ocean moves, there's this this cycling where nutrients come up from the deep ocean and fertilize the surface. And that's why we get these really big fisheries. And 20% of the animal protein that people eat on our planet is fish protein. 80% of the oxygen that we breathe comes from phytoplankton in the ocean that is fertilized by this rich nutrients coming up. And the whole driver is this conveyor belt. Well, climate change is warming the ocean. And what is and it's melting the ice caps, caps. right? Mm -hmm. And the big driver for that whole conveyor belt is the coldness in the North Atlantic. Mm. And we're warming it. And the conveyor belt is slowing already. And that to me, that's just terrifying. Because if the conveyor belt stops, completely, what do we have left? And that could be 100 years from now. So like, I I definitely know like if a scientist were listening to me right now they would be like you're getting ahead of yourself Julie and that's okay mm-hmm. but I also feel like we have to talk about these things we have to talk about these big climate connections that keep our world so functional and how we're threatening them yes because I don't think people recognize just how crucial a functioning planet is to our health
0: here on land. Mm -hmm. I'm very grateful that you're talking about all this because I feel like you do. I know lots of environmentalists out there feel like you do. You know, people are throwing these festivals and people are writing books and people are doing articles like you did for the New York Times. And it seems like we're on our tippy toes yelling and yelling. And it's just, yeah. we're just yelling with each other. I know. In a like minded right? chorus. And how do we get this chorus to sing this amazing song that wakes everyone else up to the threat of what we're doing to ourselves? Your book and your words and your time, you know, you calling around to the United Nations and all these other countries and saying, what's happening in the Suez Canal? You're breaking your own laws. All of this is important because people will hear about it and some of those people will wake up. Not yeah, all of them yet, yeah. but so I love that you're going on. Please go on all you want. <laughs> I mean, we're going to edit anyway. But <laughs> right, you know, yeah, <laughs> well, we're you know. a free flow here. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, um, there's robotic jellyfish. Is that right? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? They're so cool. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, that's the one thing
1: about jellyfish mm-hmm. is like they do get you to think about like these big, very scary questions. Mm-hmm. But they're also grounding because they're so cool, you know. Yeah. So yeah, these um, scientists were um, given a really cool grant to try to develop
0: robotic jellyfish, <laughs> and um, and do they make them out of a form of jelly, like a like they, a Playtex skin? Or? Yeah, silicone oh, actually. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so they made them out of silicone. They they're kind of like a bell, and and the story is just a really fun story. But they they have um, they put muscles in them so they could contract, and then you. <laughs> you know, release the electricity and they open up just like, you know, jellyfish. the jellyfish. Mm-hmm. So um, these jellyfish scientists made their jellyfish and they put it in the tank the first time and they turned it on and it squeezed shut and it moved forward. <laughs> and then they released it, the, you know, the actuators, the they mm-hmm. call them actuators in a robot. And they, it went right back to where it was before. Instead and they, of propelling forward. Yeah. And they squeezed it again, it went up and back and up and up like a yo-yo. Uh-huh. And they were like, Oh dang, we got that <laughs> wrong, you know. And then one of this graduate student was like, Hang on, we forgot to glue on, you know, the little peplum, the pretty scalloped part. Oh, mm-hmm. Um he's like, We forgot to glue on that piece of silicone. And they're like, oh, yeah, we, you know, they just
0: got... <laughs> oh, graduate students, Oh, graduate they're the students. best. So
1: they pull them out of the water, the jellyfish robot out of the water, and they glue on the peplum, and they wait for it to dry. And then they stick it back in the water, and they turn it on again, and this time it goes boop, 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 and it, wow. it swims just like a jellyfish. And so what they, that, like, inadvertent experiment did was teach them that that peplum... It's with, crucial. It's crucial. It's everything. And again, it doesn't have any muscles in it. It just flaps in response to the movement of mm. the jellyfish bell. And um, they went on to do like all these really cool analysis. And what they discovered is that that peplum creates these sort of eddies that spin around the outside of the jellyfish and create a low pressure system on top of the jellyfish.
0: Oh, my gosh. And that
1: low pressure system is actually stronger than the kind of jet that they get from, mm-hmm, pushing, from pushing pushing mm-hmm. out of the bottom of the bell. So jellyfish actually suck themselves through the water. The way that you would suck a straw, <gasps> that's the force that pulls a jellyfish through the water. And that's part of what makes them such efficient swimmers. And <laughs> if you think about it, everything in the ocean wiggles. Uh-huh. And it wiggles precisely uh-huh. to create that sucking, that and sucking. Suck- mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when we put on fins and we, cr- we have that floppy fin behind uh-huh. us, we're using the same thing a jellyfish does.
0: Wow. Yeah,
1: and it all came from this study about robotic jellyfish.
0: Oh, I, I want to ask you about the giant jellyfish that, that were occurring every 30 years, yeah, perhaps? and now they're occurring yearly. So can you tell everyone about these giant, giant jellyfish?
1: Yeah. When I first got on the story of jellyfish, I pretty much stayed here in Austin and reached my tentacles out into the United States and mm. talked to jellyfish scientists and like planned family vacations so I could talk to jellyfish scientists. And that went on for a couple of years. And then I sort of had this break, almost like when a jellyfish becomes a stack of <laughs> a stack of things. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of became schizzer. I'm like, oh my gosh, all this stuff is going on in the world. I have to get out of here. I have mm. to go travel and see jellyfish and um, and i decided i wanted to go see the biggest jellyfish in the world which is the giant jellyfish that lives
0: in japan in japan
1: mm-hmm. and um it is born in china and and um and if you think about it when when a jellyfish is born the free living part you mm-hmm. know after it comes off the stack it's really really small it's the size of a snowflake oh. and it has and these jellyfish grow to 500 pounds which like think refrigerator wow. in a year. They have to do that in a year. So it's a extraordinary growing. I mean, they put on 10% of their weight a day and they do it by having all these mouthlets that can just talk about like vacuum cleaner up the ocean. Wow! And um, so their oral arms are just, they're not just oral arms where they catch the stuff and then feed it into their single mouth anus. <laughs> they actually have mouthlets on their oral arms. So they have you know, of the ability to take in food much faster. So
0: it would be like if we had mouths yeah, of our, our arms. Mm-hmm. Kind That's of crazy. a weird science yeah, fiction I know, thing. I know.
1: So, anyway, but yes, the truth is that they used to exist every they used to see them. Obviously, the polyps had to exist somewhere, and they probably exist near China. But then they will travel around the Korean peninsula and then up the Japan Sea along the coast of Japan and then out the north above the northern island of Japan mm-hmm. into the Pacific where they kind of die. Mm-hmm.
0: Cause they only live about a year. And so um, they reach their five hundred pound weight and then they live for a few days and die, mm-hmm, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So what's the what's the purpose of that?
1: It's just what they do. And you know, we just have to recognize evolution has brought us these things that that work and, and also, it may have no effect on us mm-hmm. or the ocean it just may be mm-hmm. um not everything and we has see has an answer yeah like look at we the is like this weird thing like why is it have a duck bill <laughs> you know like <laughs> weppy. Yeah, weppy. Yeah, yeah like and, and lay, it's like <laughs> right exactly and you know venomous spines off of its ankles but anyway so there so there are some questions we don't know the answer to but they used to appear every 30 years and mm-hmm. it would be the kind of thing where a fisherman would be like, oh yeah, that year with the 500 pound jellyfish, you know, tell their sons, like, you'll see them, mm-hmm. just look out for them. And then 30 years later, their son would be like, oh yeah, my dad told me about that. But then in the 21st century, they've shown up every year. Mm-hmm. And it's probably a combination of overfishing, you know, that, the. The Chinese and the Japanese have really overfished mm-hmm. their seas. Pollution, the Chinese have been really bad about polluting their seas. And, um, you know, to some extent warming, it's possible they
0: reproduce faster in warmer waters. Is there something about polluted waters that benefits jellyfish? They can actually vary the gases
1: in their bells so they can pull in oxygen and go into more polluted waters and hang out there longer than fish or or things that have a faster metabolism that need to use up oxygen faster and and so that that gas-laden bell they can you know pump gases into it and go in there they have a slow metabolism anyway they can use the oxygen in their bell and hang out in these bad polluted areas much better than other other animals with
0: higher metabolism. There's a supplement on TV that claims uh, oh. <laughs> it helps our memory, and it's jellyfish. From the idea of a jellyfish, are they actually using some kind of aspect of the jellyfish, or do jellyfish in any way have any medicinal purposes to help us?
1: It's not been proven. There's been one clinical study done, and it wasn't like a, it wasn't done appropriately. And there's actually a couple lawsuits against that company for claiming what they claim. Mm -hmm. So if anyone's interested, you can go. I think it's the New York attorney general who's suing them. So please read that before you decide to take Prevagen. Mm -hmm. I'll just leave it there. But the idea behind it has to do with the glow, what you were talking about before. Um, Jellyfish glow. And in fact, we learned about um, how to make a chemical light looking at jellyfish. And I just want to say that... um, the man who really discovered it, his last name was Shimomura. He won the Nobel Prize for it. He survived the bombing in um, Nagasaki and he died yesterday oh. or the day before, I think, the day before. So I feel like we can just kind of like thank him because he really was an extraordinary scientist who taught us great things about the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he understood that glow is caused by these two chemicals called luciferin and luciferase. Those, that glow has gone on to be the gene for it, has been sequenced and put into like almost every kind of animal that we've ever studied. It's helping us find cures for Alzheimer's, it's helping us find cures for cancer. Whenever you see cells and they have like, they're colored, that's because of the the jellyfish glow that's been modified mm-hmm. so it's a really cool thing one of the things it does is it scavenges in the jellyfish it scavenges calcium this luciferin luciferase system and as we age our nerves our nerves don't clear calcium that well in our brain so the idea behind that supplement is mm-hmm. that the luciferin if you take it mm-hmm. it will clear the calcium out of your brain but mm-hmm. the problem is it's a protein, and our stomachs are like—that's what they do—is they break down proteins. Mm-hmm. So if you take it as a pill, it would be broken
0: down and never even reach your exactly. Brain, right? <laughs> and there's
1: been no evidence that it goes past the blood-brain barrier either. Oh. So that's why it's kind of mm, snake oil. Mm. But when you ask me about medicinal purposes of jellyfish, there's all this really interesting research because jellyfish are um, made out of basically collagen. And people have done some studies on that collagen and found out that it's very, very well accepted by our bodies. So they're looking, people are already using it um, for-
0: cream? Can they make it into- That's
1: one thing people are looking at it for, but there's medical reasons why people need to have collagen injected into Mm. their bodies. And Mm. and so they're they're using it for that. And um, the Italians who have- a huge influx of jellyfish because they're in the Mediterranean are looking at it um, to try to understand its pharmaceutical qualities and they discover that it has super high antioxidant capabilities and it has been eaten in Asia for a thousand years and it's it's used there to treat rheumatoid arthritis. So yeah, I mean, there's the potential for us if we look at it, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of systematically for us to maybe use jellyfish to benefit us medically
0: I really want to talk about the sting. Okay, and I want to talk it because it's it's uh, you compared it to a pencil and a Ferrari in terms of the G force, <laughs> correct? So can <laughs> so, you explain yeah. that to listeners?
1: Yeah. <laughs> I got really obsessed with a jellyfish sting because you know you think about jellyfish as like these really primitive creatures but they've got this cell that is so sophisticated and it's like the center of their survival. Mm-hmm. So the stinging cell is kind of like, um, it's a capsule mm-hmm. and it has a door on it. But before I get to the door, can I just talk about the trigger? <laughs> because yes, yes. So, so like, if you think about it, it's, it's metabolically kind of expensive to make a stinging cell. And you'll understand why when I explain the whole thing to you. Mm-hmm. So you want to like, not deploy it unless you're sure you're going to hit what you want to hit because it's a it's not recyclable they have to make a whole new one after they fire it so they have this trigger on it and the trigger it looks a whole lot like the hair cells in our ears Mm -hmm. and and so it's like kind of a cone of cilia and it can vibrate just like the hair cells in our ear vibrate and it's tuned to listen for the vibration of a phytoplankton swimming by because like just how we can hear the buzz of a fly, it can, it'll vibrate with the buzz of a zooplankton, which makes kind of like noise as Mm -hmm. it swims by. So it'll be, if it vibrates, it's the door still won't open Mm -hmm. to deploy the the set stell. It also has little um, receptors around it that have to smell the sugars that a zooplankton gives off. And then once it both smells and hears its prey, and actually there might even be a light sensor there so it has to have a shadow cast over it. (laughs) After that happens, the door flies open. And then let me describe what's inside the cell. It's like a long, 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 long pair of stockings that's 100 times longer than the cell itself turned inside out and surrounded by a pool of toxin. So when the door flies open, um well bef- right before it flies open, a bunch of water is pumped inside of the capsule. So it it jacks it up to an enormous amount of pressure, which flings the door open, and then this this inside out stocking comes whipping out, you know, unfolding the right way uh-huh. and choo, firing into the prey, and it's also got like spears and thorns and barbs and and, and things on it. So it hits the prey and it goes flying inside of its tissue. And the speed at which it, the acceleration at which it flies out of the cell is 5 million times the acceleration of gravity. So if you drop a pencil on Mm -hmm. the, you know, from your hand to the table, that's one G, that's one, you know, that's Mm -hmm. the acceleration of gravity. And it, this stinging cell explodes five million times faster than that, wow. and it's the fastest motion in the animal kingdom. And then once it's exploded, and that stalking is kind of turned right side out with all its spears and barbs, there's holes in it, and the toxin is pumped in through the the holes. And these toxins, and then, oh go. There's even more, which <laughs> but is wait. <laughs> but wait. And so the stinging cells are sort of arranged in batteries on the oral arms. So there'll be some that are tuned to. Um, the the sound of a regular zooplankton. Mm-hmm. That there's a second battery that's tuned to the sound of a panicking zooplankton. And instead of having receptors or along with having receptors for the sugars, it has receptors to smell proline, which is in zooplankton blood. So once it smells blood in the water, it fires another round to make sure it really gets its prey. Oh so it's like is being like, electrocuted twice. Yeah, yeah. It's like I've got you now. I'll really get you. Oh. You know, I don't want you going away. If I'm going to deploy my weapon, mm-hmm. I want to make sure I really get you and yeah. I have
0: get to eat my breakfast. So that's
1: yeah. So it's an astonishing amount of complexity and sophistication. So let me ask you
0: this though. So there's all these tentacles. Yeah. And is it just? Can it be just one tentacle, so or packed, all of them? No, they're packed.
1: Are, they're packed in there. These these stinging cells are only a couple microns in size, so they're just.
0: Packed in batteries around the tentacles. Wow. wow. Mm-hmm. So some jellyfish and their sting can actually kill people. That's correct? right. Yes,
1: the box jellyfish are the most toxic jellyfish. Um, there's like 50 species named of box jellyfish, and not all of them, but like maybe a, a half a dozen of them can kill you. And one of them is particularly bad. They live. They they mostly all live near. Australia and the Philippines and Indonesia, mm-hmm. um, and so if you are swimming there, you need to wear
0: stinger suits. They have stinger suits.
1: Yeah, it's just a. It doesn't Is have it to be a wetsuit with
0: anything special in it. Or? No,
1: just it's even a neoprene suit. It ah. doesn't even have to be very thick. Okay, but but you need to cover your body, and oh. um, and unfortunately, because of climate change. The, because they like warm waters and we're warming our oceans, the regions where some of these more dangerous jellyfish can live are creeping down
0: towards the more populated, populated, populated parts so, of Australia. And I read that you have they are actually putting fencing or, or mm-hmm. netting out in the ocean so people can swim safely? Correct. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm. And so, I mean, if you're going to the beach, you really need to pay attention to what the mm. lifeguards are saying. Purple flags are flying, you know, don't swim okay. or cover your whole body before
0: you swim. Mm. So um, if you get stung by jellyfish, is what, what are you supposed to do? In that case, you, would, you wouldn't you have much time, right? Is it three minutes you have till you die if you get stung by one of those? Well, yeah, the worst So one. you're done. Um, sadly.
1: But uh, if you're just are,
0: stung by a man of war, is there some yeah.
1: hope? Jellyfish scientists have now kind of come out with like, this is what you should do. And the answer is hot water or hot heat will denature the toxin and uh, vinegar. Huh. So, a combination of those two things. So, if you're going to the beach, you know, toss in those hot packs that can, you know, you squeeze to them and they get r- hot ha- really fast in mm-hmm. so you your pack. And a, and a bottle of vinegar. And and
0: so, that that should really So, urine, that's a myth.
1: Urine, I mean, urine's a little bit warm, uh, but that's really about it, it's okay. a myth, yeah. Wow. And a lot of people in Texas, you know, as kids went to the beach with um, meat tenderizer mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure that has vinegar in it. So I think that that's- Oh,
0: so that's, that was an old wives tale that was actually a
1: true one. Yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> There's also a sunscreen um, you can buy that is a sting blocking sunscreen. And I I interviewed the guy who developed it for the book and, and he actually is a microbiologist. So he really um, put in like, Things that block that kind of give the jellyfish a stuffy nose. So you know how I said it had to smell the sugar; mm-hmm. it blocks those receptors on the jellyfish. And then the other thing, when the water goes inside the cell to jack it up with all that pressure, it has salt in it to offset that pressure building. So it it's it it actually is a pretty good um, protect je- protectant. Yeah,
0: this has been incredibly delightful. Oh, good. I I've learned so much. I know our listeners have too and it was a thrill for you to come today. I have one last question for you. We ask every guest the same question, which is, is there someone in the world you would like to ask a question of? And we will go out and find that person and ask them your question for a future podcast.
1: Really? Mm -hmm. I wanna ask Donald Trump, why you won't do something about climate change. I don't think it's possible really to
0: ask Anything's him that. possible. Okay, If somebody can create a protectant in a sunscreen against <laughs> jellyfish stings, I think there's a way we could ask Donald Trump that question.
1: Okay. That's a big challenge I just gave you, though.
0: Um, uh, it was a challenge to even start this podcast. Yeah, and right? It and it's a challenge every time I ask someone and you came. You know, there's everyone's come so far that we've asked, so I can just only hope that I would have... 10 minutes with Donald Trump to ask him that question as I hand him several jellyfish. (laughs) (laughs) Box jellyfish as a gift. (laughs) 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 Oh, Thank you so much. Thank you for coming today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Studio of the Future. I'm your host, Sarah Hickman. Our guest today was Julie Berwald. You can hear and see bonus content at studioofthefuture.org. Thanks to Marty Lester for engineering, mixing, and editing at Everywhere Audio in Austin, Texas. We'd like to thank the Peaceful Pelican of Palacios, Texas, for being a supporter of today's program. This historical three-story waterfront bed and breakfast is right on the bay, including spectacular views, homemade breakfasts, and a comfy place to relax. Mention this ad and you'll receive 20% off your first booking. Visit them at thepeacefulpelican.com. Until next time, keep your mind and your ears open.